Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. No housekeeping today. We can get right into this show with Alex Schweig. He is Peruvian-born and got into flying down there at Miraflores, and then shortly afterwards got a little bored with that and decided to uh, pick it up a bit, got into Acro, still into Acro, learned German so he could move to the Austrian Alps and get a job and work in flying, and picked Gerlitzen, a very famous Acro spot, and a really good place to train, a really good place to send it, and he's doing all of those things. So he reached out to me with a terrific email about how he approaches safety and risk and progression and the value of proximity flying and ground handling and all the things that we hear about on the show, but really enjoyed his perspective uh, from the email and what he was talking about. So reached out and did a show with him. And he's been flying for 12 years, has big ambitions. Just recently did his first comps down in Columbia at the Columbia Open and the British Open. And uh, he's been doing a lot of flying with Yasin Savoy, a legend, a comp pilot. And I just really enjoyed this. We spent an hour together talking what we all love. So please enjoy this great talk with a fascinating individual, Alex Schweig. Alex, welcome to the Mayhem. I'm glad you reached out to me and kind of funny timing. I was just looking at, uh, there's a few people I like to follow on Instagram and just saw one of your uh, nice photos, I think of flying with Yasin this, this winter down in Columbia. I understand you just spent quite a bit of time down there, but I thought where we might start, because you know maybe a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with you. I, I wasn't, and I had to kind of since you sent me that email, I had to uh, been following you a bit on on the social media stuff. But why don't you share with everybody your brief history and why we're going to chat today? Thanks, Kevin. Um, yeah, as an avid listener of the podcast, it's it's quite a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm not yet a household name in paragliding, hope to be someday. Basically, I was I was born in Peru, means I grew up um, soaring on the coast in Lima. It's it's a popular coastal soaring site, but boating around um, gets boring pretty quickly. So that took me into the pursuit of acro flying and, and ground handling and proximity flying and this Waga kind of uh, flying style. And that ended up bringing me to Europe in 2018 for a, for a big Euro tour. Long story short, uh, I found an opportunity in Austria, learned German within a year, and the next year I was basically living in Austria and working as a tandem pilot, something I had already been doing in, in Lima as well on the side, but here it took upon a, a more professional note and kind of expanded my network of contacts and my interest in paragliding to the point that this year um, I went on a on a cross country exploration trip with a with a, an ex colleague of mine, Yasin Savov. He's a he's a well known PWC pilot, and that opens the door to this next chapter in in my adventure of flying, which is the world of cross country, which I find very very intensely inter interesting. And you've got you've got a German accent. Is that just from picking it up and being over in Austria? Or have you spent a lot of time in Europe previously? And also, you don't look Peruvian. So what's your what's your background? What's your heritage? <laughs> that's 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 funny you say that. I, I tend to pick up accents pretty quickly. It's um, <laughs> since I started living in Austria, I've picked up a, a pretty backcountry, mountainous Austrian dialect as well in German, which is <laughs> yeah, a bit of a fun note. 
Uh, my family is, is mostly European in background, uh, but I was born in Peru. My mother was born in Peru as well. Uh, but I'm here on a, on a Belgian passport, thanks to the fact that my dad was born in, in Belgium. So it made things quite a bit easier. Did, did you learn in Peru? Did you learn in Lima and the, the sites we've all seen in front of the buildings, kind of the rich soaring site? Yeah, exactly. So basically, that this, this site that everybody knows, the one in front of the big buildings on the coast, is called Miraflores. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn exactly there. I learned further down the coast at the site where the people who got kicked out of the main site went to fly. Because I was 15 years old, I, I never actually took a, a course to learn how to paraglide. It was basically borrowing equipment and playing with it and, and about six months of ground handling before I ever got my feet off the ground. And, and to this, I credit uh, this, this love for ground handling has made me a much better and, and much more intuitive pilot, I would say. Do you think all that playing around on the deck led you to acro too? Because that's, you know, we see all the acro pilots are just so, you know, that's something we hammer on the show all the time is how important ground handling is. Uh, and just how fun it can be too. You know, we, we want to encourage XE pilots to spend a lot of time doing it, but it, do, do you think that's what led you to acro or is it more of the flying and just kind of getting bored with the ridge soaring? I'm going to get on the side of the XE pilots who don't like ground handling and say, okay, it can be really frustrating at the beginning, but once you get into a certain flow, it can be extremely rewarding. Mm. And of course, at, at some point this playful, either proximity very close to the ground or handling the glider from one side to another, spinning it, jumping around. This of this kind of playfulness, of course, can turn into the same kind of emotions in the air. And as soon as ridge soaring from one side to the other becomes boring, you start looking to get upside down. <laughs> how did you how did you kind of start breaking into acro? Where did that how did you is that is there are there good places for that in Peru or so not not really on the coast. Uh, it's a coastal soaring site. The one good thing is if, if the wind comes in early during the day, it, it mostly holds during the whole day and it means you can do many, so to say, runs. But the truth is you're flying at most, at best, 200 meters over the ocean with waves, with power lines underneath you, uh, a highway on the, on the coast and buildings behind you. So there's no possibility of actually throwing a rescue. It's not a good acro spot. Um, but it did allow me to get an insane amount of airtime in in the few years that uh, that I was flying there. And I imagine you you know when you're when you're ridge soaring like that, and it, like you said, it it does get a little dry after not too much time. So you start spending a lot more time getting close to things, you know, proximity flying, and you know, scraping your feet, and you know, just making it more fun, which I've, is also. Obviously, you know, anytime we're playing with the ground, it's a little bit more dangerous, but it's also really good training. Did you did you find that that was that also kind of helped you prepare for acro? Yeah, definitely, definitely. One of one of the sites we started flying at uh, once I got bored at at Miraflores is Paracas. It's a it's a coastal soaring site about three hours away from Lima. This I can recommend to everybody. It's a beautiful, beautiful place in the desert inside a, a natural reserve. And the whole fun there is you can you can fly barefoot, you can touch down on on objects, you can fly very close to the ground, and this sensitivity and this playfulness um, for sure will reflect in many other aspects of flying because you're making corrections all the time. You're you're always in constant movement, 
you don't stop adjusting the angle of attack, the turn, the the pitch of the glider, including weight shift as well. And I and I believe I really do believe that this intensity of play um, has a positive effect on all aspects of flying. Did you compete in acro? No, my my level in acro is is pretty intermediate. Uh, I took part in the last acro World Cup in Albania last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but my interest right now is, is is not really competing at a high level in acro. The the level that pilots have reached right now is is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's insane. I'm content being an intermediate pilot. Yeah. How did you switch, or have you switched? I guess uh, did when when did the XC start? Yeah, for me in Peru, XC was was never really a thing. I I kind of observed it as a from the side because there are cross country pilots and there are cross country possibilities, but. Peru is a complicated place to fly. The Andes are very aggressive in geography as well as in climate. And that in, that never really piqued my interest. Once I came to Europe, I, I realized that there was so much potential to learn cross-country. But anyways, I was way too concentrated with the whole history of, of my acro flying here in Europe. And I worked uh, together with Yassen uh, as a tandem pilot at Gerlitzen. It's a popular acro site. And at some point uh, during one of the summers that we worked together, he told me, get a cross-country glider, get a competition glider. You have the skills to control it, at which point I said, no, I don't. But he told me to get a cross-country glider, prepare mentally, and go down with him to Colombia to do some exploration flying. And this was this was the beginning of what I hope will be a pretty long and, and savory career in cross-country flying. I like you. Your, your, the last sentence in your email when you were kind of introducing yourself to me was uh, laugh a bit at our shameless pursuit of living from piloting flying bags around the sky with grace and tact. <laughs> it was a great yeah, sentence. Um, flying <laughs> flying bags. I love that. Uh, around the sky with grace and tact. What does grace and tact mean to you? For me, it's it's pretty important to have a distinctive style. Um, I think one of the things that we can radiate around in our in our pursuit of flying is not only our emotions, but our style in the air, as well as on the ground. And it's important for me to show who I am in the air, not only not only so people can recognize who I am, but for me to always look for a certain harmony and a certain grace in my flying, in the same way that uh, the mark of a of a top chef can be recognized instantly by the way they play with flavors. I would I would really love for the mark of my flying to be seen instantly in the air. I've never heard uh, an analogy with food with flying. You know, we hear about the chessboard in the sky and flying chess all the time, but mm-hmm. I'm also a foodie. I'm not a chef at your level by any means, but the the cuisine in Peru is, you know, world famous these days, especially in Lima. And uh, that's that's an interesting analogy to tie food to, you know, style and the style of food and the the complexities of flavor to flying. I like that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think I think there's a certain analogy to be made between the activities that one pursues in life, um, be it rock climbing or skiing or cooking or music or flying. Uh, I think everybody can put their own spin on things. And I think it's pretty important to refine this, this distinctiveness, not, not in the sense that you have to be a show off about it or, or people have to recognize it instantly, but it gives you a very beautiful goal to work for in, in, in ever refining your own style and your own image 
also of yourself because for me motivation is a big thing i've been i've been flying for almost 12 years by now and it is a complicated thing to take care of my motivation to make sure that i don't lose the motivation for flying to make sure that flying is always a pleasurable thing and a thing that i can always learn from and not that flying becomes a routine because that's the point where i guess it can become pretty dangerous when it's just a routine and it becomes careless and you don't care anymore about showing your style or refining your style or working on your technique or or learning when it becomes a careless pursuit on the side i guess that's when it can also become pretty dangerous that's one of the chapters in my book killing complacency and it's you know, because complacency kills it's a yeah that's that's good that you bring that up will gad talks you know i've done a, i did that expedition with him a bunch of years ago across the rockies and for him style was really important what how is style you, you've mentioned style now a couple of times how do you think of style yeah, for me, it's the distinctive mark that a pilot leaves in his flying that can be recognized in, in acrobatics. It's pretty easy to to notice. You've got pilots that have a very aggressive style or you have pilots that have a very technical, clean style. In cross-country, that's more, well, not always more of a subtlety. There are some pilots who have a very sandy style, so to say. They will go out in front of the pack and not really care about anybody else's line choice and just do their own thing. Yeah, like Yasin. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, like you're learning mention, from the king of that. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been fun to learn with him. He's a, he's a character. He's a very good friend. But he does have a very distinctive style in the sense that um, he will push forward with his own line choice without much regard to whatever the pack wants to do. And so in a sense, that's a very distinctive style. Other people will be mathematical and calculating and, and very much the contemplative chess player about it. It, it really depends. For me, it's, it's working towards an aesthetic that I can be completely happy with and that identifies me as a person in the air and on the ground. You've said that you, you, know, you learned German so you could really bring your passion to a place where you can get the hours. You know, Gerlitzen's one of the best in the world because you've got the acro site and amazing cross country and typically pretty good weather for cross country. It's it's an area I know very well. It's very special in the Alps, as, also, as are most of the Alps for flying. When you say work, is that tandem work? Are you working in paragliding or is that with chef? Is that being a chef? No, uh, cooking was something I left on the side in at about basically about 2015. I took the decision to leave cooking on the side for a while and dedicate on a, on a career in paragliding. So to say, the easiest way to start with this was was tandem flying. Um, working at a flying school doesn't really pay that well. Uh, tandem flying is a good opportunity to have a very intense season and then take most of the year off to dedicate to my own flying. And um, the opportunities I found in Austria for tandem flying were very good. And, and not only that, um, the opportunities that I found to relate to a community. Gelatin is maybe not the best ever acro place. I would say it's Organia in any case. But the community that gathers at Gelatin is, is very unique. I think it's a, it's a completely unique community. There's only one like it in the world and it's right there. It centers around this camping site called Camp Candy, by those who know it. And it's just such a colorful and flavorful mix of people from all over the world who come either to fly acro or, or, or do safety trainings or just dedicate the time to being happy and colorful. You're 12 years now and 
pretty diverse sounds like you know you did the you learned in miraflores and did the the ridge soaring and then acro and and now you're in you know one of the mega places for you know it's kind of an annecy of the alps kind of place mm-hmm. to train and fly uh you you mentioned motivation have you had times where it's it's been harder to motivate harder to get out the door and you know get the hours for sure um there's been a few moments in my flying career where I've almost dropped out of the sport entirely because I pushed myself too hard. Um, I have a low tolerance for frustration. That's something that one should recognize and and handle carefully. So, for sure, there's been moments where I where I where I was angry at flying, where I was angry at the fact that we spend so much time just waiting for the correct conditions. Uh, I was angry at the fact that. Acrobatic flying is is very much a pursuit of repetition and repetition and repetition and sometimes making the same mistakes over and over and over again and mixing that with risk makes it even more complicated to to manage. But one of the important things for me is just to to keep things fresh, uh, to mix with other outdoor sports. Right now, one of my biggest pursuits at the moment is skiing and ski touring. And that's something I can very easily mix with high mounted flying, for example, doing a doing a long ski tour and flying down or actually flying up to then ride down. Hmm. Yeah, that makes it fun, isn't it? When you when you're when you're mixing activities, it's uh, just a little bit of spark. And I, I see many of course, I see many young people around me who are pursuing the sport very intensely and they attain an incredible level of skill in a very short time. Sometimes that makes me a bit envious because I look at I look back at how long I've been flying and sometimes I can't do all the tricks that some of the younger guys are doing. But then I realize that for me, the pursuit of free flight is much more of a long-lasting thing. I want to do this for the next, I don't want to say a number of years, and in that sense, I have all the time in the world to diversify and pursue different directions in flying as long as it keeps me safe, happy, and motivated. How old are you, Alex? I'm 27 at the moment. Okay. Still pretty young. 12 years. Just trying to do the math here. So you learned early, 15, 16 years old. I, I had my first flights alone when I was 15. It's a bit of a funny story since I, I, I guess this story has been repeated over and over again in the history of paragliding. but. I was ground handling on somebody's used equipment. I, I was already keen to get off the ground. Somebody gave me a radio, switched it on, took off. As soon as I took off, the battery died, boated around for about half an hour, top landed on my own. And then I decided I was a pilot. And a couple of years later, I actually got a license of my own. Have you had any accidents? That's a, that's a good question. I've, I've kept myself very, very much out of risk. I mean, not to say out of risk, I've, I've kept myself out of unexpected encounters with the planet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> you haven't hit the ground hard. <laughs> you just hit it normally. Oh, no, I've, I've, I've hit the ground hard enough to bounce, but not enough to cause any long lasting damage. Mm. Um, it is very much in my interest to keep it that way. Mm. Chalk that up for me. How, you know, I... I have often said I didn't get into this sport till I was thirty in the mid thirties, and I've often thought 
you know, given my background and my love of speed and ski racing and just all the stuff I did when I was young, I just don't know that I would have survived this sport if I had done it like you did it, you know, at that age. I, 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 anyway, I've always thought it's pretty good. I think I'm happy that I, I in some ways I'm bummed. And I mean, I, you, we learn better when we're younger and, you know, I would have loved to have been doing the X Alps 20 years ago instead of when I started at 42, uh, you know, pretty much definitely past your physical peak kind of thing. So, uh, but on, on the flip side, I've just thought, God, if I would have done this when I was 15, 16, I would have killed myself. You know, I just didn't have the respect for, I don't know, death that I do now and risk. And, you know, I, I was pretty loose for a long time and went back in my ski racing years. So I'm wondering how, you know, we, we want young people to get into this sport. You got into it young. What do you think the difference is or what are, what are the, some of the things, what can you tell people that are listening to this who are maybe younger as a bit of a heads up? I'm not looking for anything, say, you know, hey, be careful, you know, or go slow or that, but I, you know, it's, it's, a, you're, you're very different when you're 15 than when you are when you're 35. hundred percent. Um, one thing that probably made a big difference for me was that I, I wasn't involved in, in any sports at all. I was not a, I was not interested in sports until well after I started paragliding. Ah, okay. So paragliding was was an activity for me. Otherwise, I was I was quite a stay at home kid. And this made me much more reflective. I would say it made me punish myself a bit harder for my mistakes and really try to punish myself every time I would put myself in danger I would very much reflect upon it uh, because I hadn't been exposed to this kind of danger before in my life and with paragliding came also the pursuit of other sports and also some injuries on the side for example I got really into into mountain biking got really into downhill mountain biking and then the injuries started coming and I eventually left the sport because I thought this was unsustainable for me and so one thing I would I would recommend probably younger pilots is to really think about how long they want to pursue a sport and not burn out in the first few years. Um, I've seen way too many amazing talents get to a very high level and then just disappear. I guess it's a, it's a good idea to have in your head uh, how long you want to do a sport for, what, what your goals might be in the sport, what are you willing to risk, how much you're willing to put on the table to attain a certain level of proficiency in the sport. If anything, just to reflect more upon the things that we do, to reflect more upon the times that we put ourselves in, in moments of unnecessary risk, and to have an open mind for other people's comments. Um, we all know that there's, there's a breed of pilots that only sit on the takeoff and tell everybody how dangerous conditions are and then actually never fly even when the conditions are perfect bluebird day. Um, but it's fine to listen to them. But it's also fine to develop a criteria to uh, digest what kind of information is actually useful to you. So I guess having an open mind, listening to people who are more experienced, but not necessarily eating up everything that everybody tells you as well. Yeah, that's a, that's another chapter in the book. It's a hard thing sometimes. I think for you know for veteran pilots, it's pretty easy to decipher which is which but i imagine that's hard i don't really remember that we you know i flew more in places when i was you know coming into the sport where there weren't many people around 
so I didn't have to deal with that too much, but it's, I imagine that's, it's hard to figure that out when you're a hundred hour pilot, you know, who are the, who are the guys that are, you know, constantly ground sucking and for, for not much reason versus the people that you really should be listening to, you know, that, you know, might be Kriegel on launch talking about challenging conditions. Probably want to listen to that. Yeah, exactly. If somebody is throwing feedback at you, uh, I think it's pretty important to, have an open eye and see who is actually on the other side of the mic. Hmm. Um, in my early days, I was my motivation was thrown down quite a bit. My pursuit of acro and my pursuit of acro at a high level was thrown down quite a bit by the fact that nobody was flying acro at the coast. Everybody saw it as something intensely dangerous. And I was shunned away from actually pursuing this so intensely because it was perceived as something that would cause a public accident, get our flying site closed down. And in the end, moving to Europe and finding um, such a mass of like-minded people and, and such a mass of young people who would embrace this kind of activity and say, that's that's perfectly fine what you do. We're actually way more sandy than you are. You're actually a, a conservative one compared to all the variety of crazy birds out there. That was that was a big eye-opener eye for me. Mm. Yeah, I think this is one of the most important things. If you want to get good, you got to live in a good place to fly in it. I think that's just so critical, often overlooked. You need to be in a place that you can get the hours and you need to be in a place where there's a lot better pilots than you are. 100%. Um, I think one of the most important things is just to surround yourself with pilots who are way, way better than you are. That's mm. For once, you learn through osmosis. You get to see a reference point and, and locate yourself somewhere on the proficiency scale and figure out what your path is to getting to a level similar to theirs. At the moment, I don't have a fixed home. At the moment, I just move around wherever I get the most flying hours. And in this way, it's it's a nice challenge as well to organize one's life around flying conditions. Mm. The You recently started flying comps. I think in 2020, you did your first down in Columbia, if I have that right. I'd love to hear what you're learning from guys like Yasin and and how that progression is is going and and kind of what your goals are with that in the future yeah actually my my first uh, two high level comps were this year so 2021 i did the colombian open and then got accepted as a as a wild card at the british open Ooh. down in rodanillo um this was an eye opener this oh, so was that was just this year so you've just done your first that comp. was just this year oh wow okay yeah and i have the nivik open coming up in may and from there on, I still have to figure out the rest of my calendar. Mm -hmm. It was it was pretty much an eye-opener to see the level of pilots uh, flying competitions, um, the speed at which they calculate their proficiency in handling their gliders, how good they are at climbing is a real eye-opener. Mm. I would say that's the biggest difference between being proficient at acroflying and keeping a glider open will not teach you how to climb fast. That's a that's a skill completely of its own. The British Open, I didn't compete in the British this year, but I have in past years. It's it's pretty World Cup speed. This year I watched it from afar. It's it's fast. How did you find was it was it encouraging or was it really really humbling? Or both. Oh, I loved it. Mm. I loved it. Um many were saying the the speed of this year's British Open was similar to PWC. Which makes sense because most of the PWC pilots this year were using it as their as the warm up. Yeah. 
um, it was it was a bit of an eye opener for me to to realize how much I still have to go before I get anywhere near being a a top level pilot. But it also gave me a good sense of the fact that I am already in a good position to start with. I I can push confidently on a two liner. Actually, this this time that I spent down in Colombia, so about 60 something hours flying two liners and 1,500 kilometers flying in down in Colombia was the first time I'd ever spent any time at all on, on two liners. So I arrived in Colombia and two days later with three hours of sleep, I was flying 70K behind Yasin on a, on a zeolite. <laughs> Fun. That's a good time. Yeah, it's... Um, Quite the experience, I would say. And then following Yasin's pace um, through the backcountry of Colombia, doing some exploration flying, that was interesting, to say the least. And as for the competitions, I would say that the one thing that makes a huge difference is, is the climbing. Because gliding, finding good lines when you're gaggle flying is, uh, is possible, is not that difficult. But being the one who arrives even if you arrive low at a thermal and being the one who reaches cloud base first or reaches the altitude at which you want to drop that thermal and go full bar again, first is, is an art in and of itself. What, what little things were you picking up following Yasin around? He's a good climber. He, he tends to just, his downfall is impatience, but it's, it's a, it's something we all just love about him. He's, he's always out leading. It's, it's fantastic to watch. Um, you know, the, the Russ, Russ, who won the world championships this year, always talks about discipline. So Yasin probably wouldn't, I don't think he would say he has a lot of discipline, but he, he loves pushing. But I'm curious, you know, being able to fly with him outside of the comp environment, what you've learned from following him around in the sky. I wouldn't call it impatience. I would call it pickiness. Um, mm. If a thermal is not right if it doesn't have the right punch to it he's just going to completely ignore it (laughs) while somebody who's just learning and somebody more conservative like me is probably going to scratch around in in a plus 0.2 and think okay i'm getting height this is perfect and not actually go and transition again to find that boomer waiting for you two kilometers away yeah yeah just learning when to smoke through something Maybe sometimes a little bit slower, but you know, just backing off a little bit if you get a bubble versus turning is uh, is one of the critical aspects of doing well in comps. Because when it starts getting really fast, at, you know, at the World Cup level, you know, one turn that's that's not uh, well used is is you know, you, we don't want to go backwards. You'll you'll just never catch the lead gaggle again. So it's that becomes a really critical skill is knowing when to what's good and what should just be. When should you move on? Yeah, the craziest thing about complying has been basically every time I've made a wrong decision, I've had this horror moment where I've just been down somewhere low, scratching around, trying to get back up to speed, and then watching the whole field just fly over me 65 kilometers per hour. It's a it's a horror story just unfolding in front of you. <laughs> but it's it's such a roller coaster of emotions in I mean, acro flying is, is something I love and I'm going to love forever. It's it's very intense. It's very rewarding. It's very much instant pleasure. But the roller coaster of emotions throughout the whole day that, that 
unfolds within a cross-country comp and participating in an event like this is is unbelievable because you can you can have your heart sink to the bottom of the ocean while you're 50 meters off the deck just scratching in some windy place and then again you're on top of the gaggle on a big thermal with all these world-class pilots speeding away and being the one who's breaking away which which did happen to me once in the comp and it's such a feeling of exhilaration it's amazing what are your goals alex you know you've you've had this kind of uh pretty nice mix of various different aspects of flying uh, proximity flying acro now you know more recently cross country sounds like a little bit of exploration flying with yasin in the last 12 years what are the next couple and five look like to you i'm gonna say the next couple of years look quite a bit like pursuing cross-country competition as well as keeping my my current acro level and always expanding upon it is probably gonna get into some exploration flying as well it's something i'm extremely keen on and in the next five years i'd like to start participating in some hike and fly races this is probably going to be one of the toughest challenges for me because it's the first time in my life that i'm a physically active person and i really want to get up to speed and up to shape in order to participate in these kind of competitions but i have to do it in such a way that i don't injure myself from overuse because it's a type of injury i've already had from so much flying flying is terrible for your shoulders just to give an example acro flying is terrible for, for your shoulders yes indeed it's uh acro flying and landing 300 tandems a season is also not very good oh, for your shoulders yeah i hadn't thought about that yeah. Tell me about tandems. This is something I've always very consciously avoided my whole flying career is that because I hear from, it depends on who you talk to. You talk to some tandem pilots like Seb Espina, who just loves it, you know, and he thinks it really helps his flying and he just, you know, it's good money, but it's also just, uh, he really likes that aspect sharing flying, but you talk to a lot of tandem pilots and they'll say, you know, the, the, the one thing you want to do if you want to become a good pilot is not do tandems. <laughs> How do you feel about that? I'm, I've, I've been doing tandems for the past six years. Um, I'm going to say one thing about tandem flying. It's, it's wonderful to share the joy of flying with somebody who has no responsibility whatsoever with the sport. Hmm. In the sense that they're just out there to have those 15 minutes of amazing fun and you're showing them this brand new perspective on life. And when we learn to fly, our first few flights are like being a tandem passenger. It's all new. It's all beautiful. This new sensation of flight is something undescribable and it's being presented to you. And this, this awe and this admiration slowly fades and it gets picked up again every time you discover a new acro maneuver, every time you fly a new place. But with time, it kind of wears off. And, and with tandem flying, I feel you kind of absorb this from the person in front of you. Every time you do a tandem and you make somebody intensely happy, you kind of absorb this newfound awareness for flying again. So I greatly enjoy it. Um, it's just a reason to be in the air many, many hours of the year. It does allow me to be very flexible with my, with my time. Um, it's a good motivation to be an extremely safe pilot. There is no making mistakes in tandem flying. Nobody cares if you land on your ass. Nobody cares if you, what kind of tricks you fly in the sky. <laughs> For tandem flying, you have to start perfectly every single time, no matter what conditions, and make sure that the person in front of you feels the confidence to entrust their safety to you. 
there's there's no making mistakes and there's no taking dumb decisions. Yeah, I imagine that's really a, an aspect of our sport where this, you know, being mindful of complacency is a big one. I'm sure when you're just doing laps, you know, and just doing sliders and kind of quote unquote the same thing over and over again, even though even flying tandems is never, you know, no flight's ever the same as another flight. But the, I imagine that's something you have to remind yourself of pretty consistently. Is it or is that or is it just that's just natural? No, it is. It is a hundred percent true. We we tend to we tend to become complacent pretty quickly with repetition. Is something I notice, and every time I notice a, a mistake in my routine when tandem flying, I have a very very structured routine that goes from the moment I lay down my backpack on the ground to the moment that I push some passenger off a mountain. And every time I notice a mistake that I've made in this routine. Um, I try to be pretty hard on myself because this could interfere with somebody's safety and mine as well. It is, I'm not interested in injuring anybody and I'm least interested in injuring myself. How many people would you guess hundred? Okay. You take a hundred people for a tandem. How many of those hundred decide I want to do this? I want to become a pilot. I would say it's not, a, it's not very many. Um, just the pursuit of ply of 1%. I honestly don't know. I, I could say I could say a number, but it would be it would be pretending that I that I know. But it's not it's just big. the pursuit of flying is a it's not big. No, I, I would say the pursuit of flying is is such a technical thing, and it's such a commitment in time, money, and and dedication and mental bandwidth. Most people that I fly with, at least in the place that I do fly with, because um, it is a touristic place, it is a family holiday site. They're just, they're just there for a joyride. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Why, you know, you're you're quite interesting. I, I don't know that there's that many people that get into this sport that come from not a very sportive background. And I'm, I'm always fascinated with this with my own group of friends. You know, my most of my friends, I mean, nearly all of them who I do, you know, pretty pretty wild things with, whether that's, you know, snowmobiling, backcountry or ski touring or I'm, I'm kind of like you with mountain biking. I've kind of given it up. I've got hurt and hurt too many times, but you know, th these are people who are very competent in the outdoors have, have, you know, played in the outdoors their entire lives. They have no interest in flying. They love my stories and they like watching the films and, you know, they're fascinated by it, but they're not even interested enough to go have a tandem. That's interesting. Uh, you know, th that it's, you know, it's one of these things that I think most of us have in us in a, when we're a kid. We look at birds and want to fly. And I, I certainly wanted to fly, but I, I didn't get into flying until I was in my mid-30s. I didn't really know what it was before then. But you know, we don't we don't see it like you do in the Alps, you know, here in the States. It's, it's just not everywhere like it is in the Alps. So it's, it's, it's pretty hidden. But, but yeah, the question is, you know, why do you think it's it it only reaches out to a very small percentage of people because when you take your passengers tandem they don't know any of those things about gear and time and you know they, they they're just oh i'm flying this this is pretty neat i want to get into this but it doesn't seem like that's the case i would say i would say flying is something that you're born with the, this desire mm. to look up into the sky and want to be there i think you're either born with it or you're not you can certainly grow into it but I, I feel like this is a dream that is 
like a gene. It, it's, it's within you. You can either choose to exploit it or not. I was a pretty nerdy kid. Most of my childhood I was spent reading and, and, and doing some kind of pursuit that was not really very related to sports. At some point that became an, an obsession with airplanes. Uh, I was very much into building and flying radio control airplanes. And that led into paragliding. Because at some point I, I realized that these, these airplanes I was building and, and the joy I had in, in flying them were not enough. And as soon as I saw people actually flying on their own, this, this spark and, and, and this dream was born within me to actually take part in that. And at the beginning, there was no ambition. There was absolutely no desire to do anything but just sit up in this chair in the sky and watch the world from above, from this very contemplative, meditative position. But that slowly became the pursuit that it's become now, that, that has been mixed with uh, being a multi-sport mountain athlete, participating at a high level in competition, which is something that I never desired before until this year. It's been an interesting journey and, and, and to observe myself from the outside is, is very rewarding as well. Um, flying has brought me everything I have in life, uh, personal transformation, a very, very rewarding and varied lifestyle, friends, a job, traveling to, I think I've flown in about 13 different countries by now. So yeah, the pursuit of flying, I would say is it's either something that's deeply ingrained in you or it's something that you can appreciate and participate in as a passenger, but it's you're not going to be pulled into it because you think it's too extreme or too complicated or you're just not drawn in that way to experiencing it constantly. With your acro background, what would you say about the importance of SIV and XE? I would say cross-country pilots have a bit of a, of a way to go. I observed a few incidents in the air in Colombia. I saw some very interesting, to say the least, uh, situations, including like a full one rotation tumble over an Enzo after an asymmetric collapse. Very, very enlightening to see from a distance. Um, but it just shows me... Yeah. <laughs> But it just shows me the level of SIV that many top-level cross-country pilots have is insufficient. And I would say any amount of acro training and any amount of just control training, including ground handling and close-to-the-ground flying and playing, is not just rewarding, but it's, it's going to exponentially increase anybody's level of safety during, during this pursuit of cross-country flying. Because to be honest, these, these cross-country gliders, they're not... They can be extremely aggressive in very punctual situations, but an acroglider is, is more demanding when it gets out of control, I would say. Mm. Things happen quicker. And the fact that you become proactive in, in controlling an acroglider throughout maneuvers and throughout the learning process of acro gives you a lot of mental bandwidth to be able to play with when you are in a in an emergency situation. Because there's a lot of things that your hands are doing without you ever having any idea what they're up to. What would you like to see more of in our sport, Alex? When you're you know you're in you're in a major hub, what what do you think is missing or what or whether that be training, safety, instruction, wings, gear? I would like to see um 
I would like to see training follow a more natural path because um, a student fresh out of flying school has a very confusing career ahead of him. I would like to see training. <laughs> I would like to see training follow a path that leads them, depending on their interest, through a safe way of progression to attaining their goals. Because right now you you leave school as a beginner pilot. And you're basically out on your own. Like you can decide to take a cross-country course. You can decide to enroll in a safety training. But these are all very, very specific things. And there's not too much uh, string actually binding them together. I'm, I'm amazed that this is something that comes up all the time. And it doesn't matter who I'm talking to or from where they are. And we, I mean, I know there are places that training is better than other places and I won't get specific on that but the you know and there are of course instructors who are better than other instructors but and that that's just the case in in any sport and any anything we undertake but this bird out of the nest thing and kicked out of the nest is is incredible in our sport it's something that comes up over and over and over again you know we you know depending you can go through the APPI system or one of the others but at, the, at some point you're you're you know, quote unquote, done with your initial training and then see you later. Good luck. <laughs> it's, it's a bit mind boggling. It's a, it, it's no wonder that I think we see, we have the attrition rate that we do and also the accident rate that we do. Yeah. The issue is that our sport is so unfathomably complex and far reaching that it's, uh, it's hard to actually create a system of education that will encompass everybody's interests, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, you get kicked out of the nest with a very, very basic set of skills that is very certainly insufficient for most situations in flying, except taking off in perfect conditions, flying down in perfect conditions, doing that, doing a little bit of thermaling in perfect conditions and landing in perfect conditions. But the issue has to do with the fact that this is this is also not any conventional sport. This is, after all, aviation. This is, after all, extremely technical and extremely reaction-driven. And it's just a sport that requires such a massive investment of time and mental power. And I would say self-reflection as well, if someone wants to do it sustainably. That many people just find themselves incapable of dedicating that much energy into the sport and are stuck in this uh, intermediate syndrome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Alex, curious, uh, what's, your, what's your biggest aha moment, let's say in the last year with paragliding? Uh, moving from an 18 acroglider to a two-liner that I've never flown before in real air and actually figuring out that paragliders can fly pretty far. <laughs> That's a fun one. Hey, wait a minute. I can go a long ways. This is cool. Hey, wait a minute. I don't I don't actually have to look down. I can look straight and I can actually go there. Yeah, that is pretty neat. I remember my the first time I watched the X Alps was in 2007. And I was sailing. We were we were doing the kite surfing expedition thing and we I was sailing up in Oh, do I have that right? No, that, that was 2011 when I was sailing in Scotland. But anyway, I saw the first one in, in 2007 and it blew my mind. All I had ever seen was 
exactly what you described was people would launch off a hill and fly around for a little bit and then land right there where you were standing. <laughs> and that's what I thought paragliding was. It just seemed the most boring thing in the world to me. And then I saw somebody put me onto the X Alps and I watched it and just got totally addicted. And I thought, wait a minute, hold on a second here. These people are traveling. <laughs> they're, they're using this like you said, what, what did you call it? A, you know, a bag, <laughs> flying bags to travel. Yeah. Just was, for, for me, it's still completely unfathomable to, to, to put my head around the fact that we can ski tour or trail run or hike up a mountain with a, basically a school backpack <laughs> and then proceed to go 300 kilometers in the Alps. To me, it's just a crazy pursuit. Is the fact that we are the first humanity has has dreamed has always had their eyes turned up to the sky always thought wow would be so majestic to soar among the birds the fact that we live within the first few generations that are able to do this with such ease and and convenience it seems to me a waste of my time not to dedicate myself to that yeah it seems quite unfair doesn't it that we didn't have plastic and nylon when da vinci was alive you know that poor guy he dreamt all this he drew it all out but he couldn't do it no we're, we're very fortunate what's the funniest thing you've ever seen flying oh that's a bit of a difficult one i'm gonna have to think about, about that one for a bit i've seen i've seen many interesting situations a uh, thing we should i was i was living at a flying site called bishling um yeah, I, I know bishling. so okay cool Nice. I was living there last winter, and, and one thing we would do is just... Austria is a very alcoholic country, let's put it that way. And one one thing we would just do is there's there's like a mountain hut right next to the takeoff. We would sit on the terrace and have some beers and just eat some imaginary popcorn and watch things going on at the takeoff, you know? With <laughs> all kinds of pilots and all level of pilots taking off and flying around. It's It's a circus. Yeah, it is. That is. That is. That can be quite circusy, isn't it? <laughs> in a busy, in a busy launch, it is very entertaining. Uh, yeah, Bishling would be a good spot for that. We we constantly go through there day one of the X Alps. So, what what piece of kit would you love to see that doesn't exist yet? I was gonna wish for it, but somebody just brought it out on the market, and it's this uh, this this new flare glider that allows you to have depower like a kite and and fly closer to the ground and I'm, I'm so stoked to try one of them soon that's a big dream of mine to have this ability to swoop down and stick to the ground um, and something i'd really like to see is a bit of an innovation in the rescue technology and cross-country harnesses i'm thinking a base system in a cross-country harness would not be a bad thing i'm really surprised nobody's brought it out on the on the market because cross-country pilots need weight anyways. Weight is not an issue. I myself fly with six liters of water in my cross-country harness. I'm thinking that those six liters of water could be a life-saving base system instead of just useless water. Do you know about Vesso's harness? He's made of it. Of course. He's, he's a, has he a cross-country one already? No. No. Oh, sorry. You, I didn't hear you say cross-country. Yeah, no, it's acro. But... No, your his his harness is terrific with that whole base system and cutaway system. But yeah, if we could, if we could bring that, in, it's I think it's coming. But if if we could bring that into XC, that would be really terrific. 
probably another piece of kit I would be very, very much interested in would be a more beginner-friendly uh, school harness, just yeah. to avoid all the kinds of mistakes that still happen somehow with people not even experienced pilots. This is this is something that's completely confusing to me, how pilots can still forget to do the leg straps. And the current T-bar systems and the current stay up or, or not forget systems out there on the market, they're nice solutions, but they're fiddly. And, and I wish there would be some kind of a system that would make this completely impossible. The fact that you could get into a pod harness or into a, or into a school harness with your legs undone and thereby producing a deadly incident. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. It still happens way too much. I, that always blows me away too. But yeah, we've got to be nice if we can get rid. You know, this is something that doesn't happen in com commercial aviation because they've made checklists. You know, they've made, you just you can't, they've eliminated the dumb stuff because you have to go through this every single time. And we teach that to an extent, you know, and it becomes a thing, you know, you're, you're, you know, the for, the checks you do that's that's the something we've you know we've ingrained in people but it still gets forgotten we you know we're still human we make mistakes the one thing that that flying so many tandems so many thousands of tandems by now has really ingrained into me is the importance of a of a standardized procedure yeah so i follow basically the same procedure from the moment i set down my backpack on the ground to the moment that that i leave the ground and this applies across the harnesses that I use. So for me, it's it's very simple. It's one leg strap, T-bar on one side, T-bar on the other side, the other leg strap, chest strap, or whatever combination of, of uh, buckles that I have. But I try to do it consistently in exactly the same order. For once, it's just easier on the mind. And there's no way of making a mistake if you're always following exactly the same procedure. Hmm. Yeah, that's really smart. I think that that's something that easily missed. You know, the, we, we talk about all the time, you know, when you're when you're clipping in, don't talk to anybody and all these things. But I mean, if you just make it exactly the same every time, you know, that's a good way to solve that. This is how you do it. I mean, you never forget how to tie your shoes because you've done, yep. you've tied your shoes in exactly the same way your whole life. If you put on your harness exactly the same way your whole life, it's pretty hard that you're going to do something wrong. Hmm. Hmm. Alex, you're probably aware of this, but I've been asking you questions from this survey I put out about a year and a half ago. And I've got a couple more and then we'll wrap it up and be mindful of your time here. But I've really enjoyed this. I've got a couple more here. This is a tricky one, but does free flight make other aspects of your life better or worse? So work, relationships, that kind of thing. I would say I would say free flight has been the single most determining factor in most of my life in, mo in most aspects of my life, so to say. It's for sure determined where I live. It's for sure determined my friendships, my relationships, uh, how I spend my time, how I plan my year. I would say it's been positive. Uh, as I said, free flight has brought me friendships, connections, work, an extremely rewarding lifestyle. A bit of an uncertain one at that, but extremely rewarding, I would say. It's brought me to actually love sports and love taking care of myself and being healthy. And it's just 
brought me to meet some of the most amazing people on the planet. You know, the diversity of people that are attracted to free flying. There's everything. There's absolutely everything. There's the IT guys. There's the engineers. There's the there's the hippies. There's the the crazy skiers. There's every type of colorful character you can imagine out there in paragliding. And for some reason, a big number of them tend to concentrate around this place called Camp Candy. If anybody wants a dose of color in their lives, I would really suggest spending a couple of weeks down there. That's a terrific spot. You've mentioned a few times that your, you know, your approach has been pretty conservative. And you haven't had an accident. Been at this for a while now, twelve years. I'd like to just hear more about how you manage the kind of risk to reward spectrum and and how you view luck versus probability i would say i can i can discount the first years of my flying as being not very risky for sure the flying that i'm doing starting from the moment that i moved to europe is of much higher risk because it's much more real one thing is coastal soaring and playing around on the coast and it's completely another thing to be living in stuvaital where you can choose to take off on a day with fern probability and then see yourself flying 30 kilometers per hour backwards if the flu- if the, if the wind actually blows in through the valley so i would say my my risk level has increased but it has increased very much proportional to my expertise and my knowledge uh, i would say it's very very important for people wanting to do this for a long time to take a look at themselves at themselves from the outside um Consider what kind of risks they're taking, consider how to minimize these risks, consider the value of, of always staying up to date and training, and the importance of, of having proficient glider control. You know, I, I never want to be in a situation where I very much feel that I'm a passenger of destiny. And this, uh, as an acropilot, I'm, I, I say I'm a conservative acropilot because I'm not very often out of control. There's, there's many people flying acro who get into situations with multiple twists and they get out of these situations successfully and and very often. Um, one thing you see in acro flying is actually how many, how, how, how dire a situation can be and still solve itself completely on its own. But I don't want to, I don't want to take this approach because I don't think it's a sustainable one. I'd, I'd rather take an approach where either I don't put myself in a situation where I'm out of control or if I put myself in a situation that I'm out of control, I have the tools at my disposal to work myself out of it and not just wait for fate to do its thing. It's important for us to not confuse luck with <clears throat> luck with skill, isn't it? Completely. Alex, it was a very articulate hour with you. I love how you describe flight and your approach. Thank you very much. That was a, that was a true joy. I really appreciated this. I learned a lot and uh thanks for your time thanks gavin as as i said the podcast for me is a is a wonderful medium to learn it's something i plug into when i'm running or ski touring or or, or just really need to clear my mind and, and bring some fresh thoughts some of the people that you give a platform to are amazing and i just hope that my words can inspire some people to follow this this as i said this dream of flying bags around with grace and tact all over the world. It's quite a colorful thing we do. It's beautiful. That's a nice goal. To do this with grace and and style and and tact is is important. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. And good luck. We hope to see you in the sky soon. See you in the sky soon, Gavin. I don't think it's going to be very long until we meet at some comp. That sounds, sounds like it. 
Sounds like it for sure. Cheers, bud. Thank you. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you